Last week we were dealing with forgiveness, and uh, at the end of the of the session, I must have made some kind of comment that that uh, Harlan reminded me of that we needed to distinguish between punishment and uh, discipline, and that that's an important distinction to make. We have collapsed those two ideas in our minds in our dealings with our children. So punishment, you've done this, the punishment is. Um, let's, let's take the extreme of punishment that humans can dish out, and that would be um, death penalty. <clears throat> um, in, the death, in giving the death penalty, does the court or does the state care whether the convicted person is repentant or in any way changes his attitude about what, what happened? Does the, the state care about that? No. No, not at all. Maybe some of you will remember the, the cartoon, and I don't remember what they were advertising, frankly. It was more of a public service. It was not a cartoon. It was a commercial. It was a public service. <laughs> Just washed my mouth this morning, can't do a thing with it. Um, it was a public service commercial. It was stick figures from the Old West, and, and uh, they're going to, to lynch a guy. And the catch phrase of the commercial was, string him up, it'll teach him a lesson. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, a rope around your neck without a horse under you is bad news. That's the lesson. Yes? But we don't care in punishment whether the criminal improves in any way, uh, certainly, uh, certainly not spirituals. The state doesn't care about spiritual improvement. Uh, but but moral improvement, societal attitudes improvement. No, state doesn't care. Um, so the penalty is assessed, and the cost to the um, criminal is not entailed. We, 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 we care nothing about what the cost to the criminal is going to be in bearing the the uh, punish, punishment that's meted out by the court. That includes the costs to his wife and his children and his parents. And, uh, am, I, am I right? right? We don't care. Um, discipline is fundamentally different. The only thing discipline concerns itself with is the future of the person who's done wrong. Discipline aims entirely at the change in the person who's under discipline. Uh, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 12, it's the most significant passage I know in the New Testament on discipline. Um, here, here, there's an odd fact here about the disciplining work of God. Let's just read it. Hebrews um, 12, verse 12. I'm sorry, is it? Uh, um, so, verse 4 Hebrews 12 4 um, now since I have a doctorate from Dallas Seminary and I know great and wise things most people don't know verse 4 kind of implies verses 1 to 3 yes um, and that's the beginning of chapter 12 which kind of implies chapter 11 yes um, I may have done this with you last week but 
but it bears repeating. Notice in verse uh, 3, 12.3, the word endured. Did we do this last time? No. No? Um, Look in chapter 11 at... uh, Where is that verse? Um, where is where is it that Moses endured as seeing him who is unseen? I can't find it. It's probably Mark. Oh, there it is, verse 27. If it's marked in my Bible, I can never see it. <laughs> uh, but notice in verse 27, uh, he endured. It's a slightly different word for endure than chapter uh, chapter 12 go back to chapter 10 uh, look at um, verse uh, 36 you have need of endurance are you, are you with me mm-hmm. all right um, why make this point well beginning at verse 32 there there is a probably the longest exhortation section that we've seen in the book of Hebrews up to this point. Um, uh, We we talk about the warning passages in Hebrews. Yes? Okay, you've not heard that term? Uh, You know the passage, chapter 6. That's one of the warning passages. It starts in 2, 1 to 4, and then there's chapter 3. There's one in chapter 3. There's one in chapter 4. There's one in chapter 6. There's one in chapter 10. Um, This is the longest of them. Um, And in light of the message, in light of the main theme of the book of Hebrews, uh, the author, um, probably this is intended to be a sermon, so that the the person who's doing the sermon is interspersing application as he develops the thought of the book. Does that make sense to you? Uh, in chapter 10.32, he's come to his uh, fourth, uh, fourth warning passage. Uh, um, remember the former days in which once you were enlightened, you endured, you endured, notice that, a great struggle of affliction, of sufferings, in part, Enduring the uh, slanders and aff- and affliction, being made a, a public spectacle, others, some of you, some others of you, be- uh, were uh, sharing uh, with those who were who were uh, uh, enduring these things. For uh, uh, you suffered to the point of bonds and seizing of your property with joy. Um, Awaiting, uh, awaiting it with joy, knowing that you yourselves have a better possession and one that abides. Do not cast away your boldness, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that by doing the will of God, you may obtain the promise. And then you get, you get down to chapter, uh, uh, verse 39. Uh, we are not of those who draw back to destruction, but of faith. 
for the possession of our life, or soul, your text probably says. Um, is it then any wonder that chapter 11 is there? Chapter 11 is not defining faith. That's not its purpose. Um, notice that before chapter 11, we talk about endurance. After chapter 11, we talk about endurance. And in chapter 11, we talk about Moses' endurance. But, but everything, all the examples of faith here are not defining faith. They're, they're, def, they're, they're identifying one characteristic of faith. Uh, so faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Notice that Moses endures as seeing him who is unseen. Yes? So, so what does faith do in the light of persecution and the light of struggles and suffering? It endures as seeing him who is unseen. Chapter 12 now. Verse 1. Um, Therefore, having so great a cloud of witnesses, these are not people who are watching us. They are, one, they, they are the people who are bearing testimony to us about the worthwhile nature of the, of, the, of the hope that we have and the necessity of enduring to get it and the value of enduring to get it. We have so great a cloud of witnesses, let's lay aside every, every weight and the sin that so easily besets us and let us run, you have with patience, mm-hmm. yeah, um, endurance. Endurance. Uh, is a different word from others that we've had in our text, but it's still the same idea. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking off to, looking away to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. But you can't see Jesus because faith is the is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Um, looking away to Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such great affliction, um, uh, such great opposition from sinners against himself so that you may not lose heart um, uh, growing weak. For you have not, and here we begin the, the discipline passage. You have not yet suffered to the point of shedding blood in your struggle against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation that's addressed to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the... And what do you have? Chastening. Chastening. Paideia is the Greek word, which was the fundamental Greek word for education. (laughs) Um, uh, But it can be used in the sense of um, disciplinary... Activity, uh, but what what is education? What in fact, <laughs> when you talk about a university and you talk about all the various areas that they do training in, one appropriate word for each of them is discipline. discipline. Uh, uh, what are the disciplines that are taught at that school? Does that make sense to you? So education, paideia in Greek. Um, uh, do not despise the the disciplinary work or the educational work of the Lord nor lose heart when you are rebuked by him for whom the Lord and and, and note that there are four verbs here in verse 6 
whom the Lord loves, he, and you have probably chastens, it's that word paideia again, it's the verb form paideo, whom the Lord loves, he educates, (laughs) and scourges every son whom he receives. Note the four verbs. Do you have it in the, the, in the same order I, I read it? Some of the translations don't. Um, um, but this one, the word order is really cru- crucial in rhetoric. And it doesn't matter where you go in thinking about rhetoric. Uh, Aristotle gave the first formal discussion of what rhetoric is in the 5th century B.C., 4th century um, but everywhere you go, when you're talking about rhetoric, there are certain uh, things that you can do to, to kind of um, arrange your ideas to be more memorable and to, more, to be more impactful. And one of them is what's called a chiasmus. I, I, you didn't come here for a rhetorical study this morning or this afternoon, but you're going to get it because I'm the teacher. You want different content? Go to a different teacher. <laughs> but a chiasmus, the word C-H-I-A-S-M-U-S, it simply means to make a chi. You know the letter chi because you know the fraternities, yes? And so, uh, so chi, A-B-B-A. Right, so the a the, the first in the in this case the first verb is uh, loves. It's paired with the last verb in verse six, receives. Discipline in verse two, I'm, I'm verse six, and the second one he, he, he chastens. Some of you have, mm-hmm. yeah, is paired with the, the first verb. In the, in the latter part of the verse, he, he scourges. Right? Yes? Mm-hmm. Right. So, loves, disciplines, scourges, lo- welcomes. In a chiasmus, it is usually the, the, the goal of the communicator to emphasize one or another of the elements in the chiasmus. This is a four-element chiasmus. You can have six, you can have eight, you can, you can have as many as you want, effectively. But that gets a little more ponderous and, and hard for people to follow. But these, these four, which, is, which of the two, God's love and acceptance or his chastening and scourging, which of the two is what's emphasized in the passage? Love and receive. Love and receive. Watch it as we uh, as we develop. The, the way you know what's being emphasized is by looking at the context. Context is king in Bible inter- in all interpretation. You can't think about interpretation without thinking about con- uh, 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 interpreting in light of context. Yes, ma'am. What is what is the meaning by scourge? Um, you know, we'll talk about that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. We'll have to come back to it, so don't let me forget. <laughs> so, um, so verse uh, 7, it is for discipline that you are, what? Enduring. God is dealing with you as sons. Yes? Are there, is there anyone else in this passage that we've read 
who is a son. Jesus. Jesus was disciplined because he was bad. Oh yeah, because that's what that's what it all means, doesn't it? I mean, why do you di- why do you discipline your kid? Because they're bad. Yes. You know, my mother. I I I I, I wish I wish you had hearts of compassion. I don't think you do. You're going to laugh when I say this, and it's going to be painful for me. You're going to cause pain to my soul when you respond to what I'm about to say. My mother was a tyrant. She stayed up nights dreaming up things for me to do. And one of the things, oh gosh, this, this was a great trial of affliction. It, it, has, it has marred my soul to this day. She made me bake, make my bed every day. Did you have any brothers and sisters? No, I was the only child. Okay, I forgot that. Oh, <laughs> so you got it all. Yeah, I had to dry the dishes for dinner every night, and and had to put them away. And mother, she'll hold, she'll she'll tell you this. What I'm about to say is true. When mother cooked, she used every pan in the kitchen. Is that right? <laughs> Very nearly. And I had to take out the trash every day. What kind of life was that for a child? Did you have to eat everything too? Yeah, and asparagus included. Canned asparagus, if they dumped it all in the ocean. Today, I would feel no pain for any farmer who would sell his asparagus to be canned. Yikes, what a horrible thing to do. Uh, I can barely take it um, sautéed. But you know, I'd love to hear her side of this story. <laughs> <laughs> you are. You're hearing it in your head. <laughs> we wouldn't recognize it. <laughs> uh, she said, she told me on many occasions just to defend myself, and it's from her own mouth. You're a good boy. Problem is, there's no demand for good boys. <laughs> So, uh, uh, now, my point in, in making all this nonsense here is to say, um, scourging, now, back to the point that you raised, scourging is anything that causes us affliction. It's, it's a very f- uh, 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 damaging form of punishment. But we're not talking about punishment in this passage. Jesus was disciplined. He was a son all sons, look, look at verse 7. You are endure, enduring to the point of discipline. God is dealing with, with you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? So if Jesus is also a son, he is also disciplined, but not because he's bad. Are you with me? We are, but that doesn't show up in this passage. There's not a word in this passage about God doing this because we're sinful. The reason he does it, that the cause of his disciplinary work in our lives is that we are sons and his loving acceptance surrounds his disciplining work in our lives. That word accepts at the end of verse 6 is not just, okay, well, yeah, that that's my kid, and I put up with him as much as I can. That word is a word that you only use in, in Greek 
to, to express the idea of receiving a friend or a gift or something valuable. Does this make sense to you? It's, it, so a, a good word, a good English word for this would be welcome. The Lord, uh, whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son he welcomes. So the disciplinary work of God is about God welcoming us as sons in the family. What are you thinking, brother? You're just, you're, you're really pondering this. I can see it in your face. Anything on your mind? Okay. Yeah, thinking about how we went from endurance to, to this. Yeah. They fit together. Well, yeah. How do they fit together? How, how does God's acceptance fit together with our endurance? Any ideas? Trying to give us understanding, I think. Yeah, it's giving us understanding so that we can bear up realizing what God is doing and for what purpose. And that's a good part of the rest of this passage, down to verse 12. In fact, it's most of what the rest of this is about. Verse 11 says it's for the peaceful fruits of righteousness. Yeah, that, but that's only one of three. Who have been trained by Yeah, that. but it's only one of three benefits. I want to go through them. Okay. Uh, so verse uh, 8, If you are without discipline, of which all have become participants, then you are illegitimate. You're not sons at all. If Jesus has undergone discipline, then how can we expect to, to escape such? Jesus' discipline included... A hatred from his own people, the scorn of his own brothers. You remember this? It included um, then a false condemnation before a an unjust court. Uh, the lash and this, this now back to that word scourge is this is the word they used for what they did beating Jesus before the crucifixion. It's that cat of nine tails. They typically put pieces of metal or of glass in the ends of the of the flails on the on the whip and the executioner was trained how to how to flick that whip just so that those those bits of metal and glass could rip whole pieces of flesh out it it was brutal and a lot of people died under the under the uh, mustics is the word in greek um and then He's crucified, shamefully. Um, we don't. We don't. We, we we know the shamefulness of the cross. We don't understand what how shameful it was. It was reserved for enemies of the state or slaves. Um, and the Roman orator, the sound just went off. I know not what happened. Um, the orator Cicero. The battery must have gone dead. Let's see if I can rectify that. Because everything is plugged up properly here.
Now, is it back up? Yes. All right, good. Um, the orator Cicero, um, talking about crucifixion, said, may the very word of the cross be far from every Roman citizen. Um, it, was, it was a capital offense to execute a Roman citizen by crucifixion. Uh, he, um, he tried to, he, he, he argued a case uh, against the former governor of Sicily because he had crucified a human, a, a Roman citizen. And he was, that, that, that governor ended up have, uh, dying under the extreme penalty of the law. Um, but he was not crucified because uh, that's not what you do to a Roman citizen. Um, so this, we don't even understand the shame of the cross. And then, and then he dies for no reason because he's a righteous man. He should not have died. Yes? We all know that. Uh, so we have the pattern of Jesus. Verse, um, verse 9 now starts with the first of three reasons for the disciplinary work of, our, of God in our lives. Formerly, we had fathers of our flesh who disciplined us, and we honored them. That, that's a great verse <laughs> uh, where there's no abuse. Um, there was a, what we would consider abuse in Roman society by fathers of their children, but they didn't consider it abuse. Uh, but they did expect that the sons would honor their fathers. Does this make sense to you? Um, we have come to a different conclusion on these things. But if you honored your father on earth, what what shall I do? Shall we not more, much more? Um, let's see, I've lost my place. Shall we not much more submit ourselves to the father's, father of spirits and live? First benefit of enduring the discipline of God is life. And for Hebrews, life is not merely life on this earth. It's life eternally. Uh, it's life in the kingdom. It's life in the messianic rule of everlastingly. Verse 10, second benefit. They, on the one hand, disciplined us for a few days as seemed appropriate to them. Um, one day, mother called me in. Because I had a friend who uh, would get mad and stalk off, and I would go down, because I'm a conciliator. <laughs> so I would go stalking off down to his, or, I'm sorry, my friend stalked off back to his home, and I was on, I, I typically would try to conciliate with him and, and uh, give in to him and so on. And Mother had told me, don't, you quit that. Uh, you, you, can't, you can't have a friend who's doing that to you. So one day he pulled that stunt and he was off heading off down to his house and I got on my bike and started riding. Well, he only lived three doors down from me. I didn't need a bike to get there, but she thought surely Jim's going to go try to reconcile. And she brought me, she called me in and I got a good spanking and she, boy, she, oh boy, she had a black belt in spanking. <laughs> it was mine. And I, it was always the word, go get the belt. And I knew I was in trouble when she said, get the belt. Uh, and she pretty much wore me out that day. Found out later that I was just going to ride my bike, and she was just brokenhearted. Uh, so I'd say something nice about my mother here. 
Jill will say a whole lot more nice things because she wasn't raised by that woman. <laughs> the, the, the point is that, that even humans can misunderstand and bring discipline where no discipline is necessary. So they disciplined us for a few days as seemed appropriate to them. But he, for our profit, that we might share in his holiness... So the discipline of God gives us life. It builds into us holiness. And then the one that we mentioned just a few minutes ago, verse 11, no discipline is for the present that seems to be a thing of joy but of sorrow. And what are the, what's the next expression in that verse? Who have been trained by it afterwards. Well, no, just, just immediately next. Not a, not a thing of joy, but of sorrow. What follows immediately next? Rather than pleasant in mind. Well, how about um, in the end? But later, years. Later. That word later. Peaceful fruits of righteousness. Yeah. Later, in Hebrew, this, this word is, is really late. <laughs> I'm sorry, in Greek. It's really late. It's way down the line. Uh, how long does it take a blade of grass to mature? From sprout to full maturity? A few days. A few days. How long does it take a dog to mature? A couple of years. Yeah, two to three years for full maturity. How long does it take a human to mature? <laughs> yeah, it's up to debate. Some never get there. <laughs> Uh, uh, but it's it's twenty to thirty years, really, probably nearer thirty years, right? Um, I tell young men who are turning turning thirty, and they're thinking, "Oh gosh, I'm getting so old." I said, "No, you're not getting old. You're just getting useful. Finally, you're worth what they're paying you." <laughs> uh, um, thirty years. Is there something wrong with us that it takes us thirty years, a dog three, and a blade of grass a few days? Or is there some basic principle in this? The more advanced the life form, the longer maturity takes. Does that make sense to you? How long does it take for a child of God to mature? Apparently a lifetime. Yes? So, so um, this in the end, when does the, when does the disciplining work of God in our lives stop? When our life on earth ends, as far as we can tell, I'm surely no suffering in heaven. Um, so, so the end for us, at least in this passage, is death or rapture, whichever comes first. Um, but the end for God, finally, is the coming of the messianic kingdom and the full establishment of the kingdom. I'm not talking about the millennium here. Uh, I'm a premillennialist, um, but I've come to think the, the the millennium is really only a front porch to the saving work of God. It's just the beginning, really, because there's still sin, there's still death in the millennium, and only when there is no sin and death is the Messiah fully reigning and exercising his his rule over this earth. So the new heavens and the new earth. And that's what I think Hebrews is aiming toward, not getting into the millennium, but, 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 but being part of the new creation of God. 
So, in the end, it yields the peace of fruit, a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been exercised by. What's that word "exercise" mean? Do you do you even have exercise in your text? Trained. Uh, the word is is the word we get gymnasium from. Um, so. This is where you go work out to prepare for the real test, maybe the Olympics, right? This is the process you do working out for the Olympics. Is, is this go along with what Paul told, I think it's in Timothy, to work out your salvation? Mm, yeah, to some degree. Yeah, carry it to full, uh, to full state. So, yeah. So the, so the disciplining work of... Notice how absent this passage is, how it lacks utter utterly lacks any reference to our personal sin. What's in view is our immaturity and the need to grow to maturity. Does this make sense? Yeah. And so, three basic effects of the disciplinary work of God in our lives. We live. um, We um, uh, gain His holiness. And that we have the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Does this make sense to you? Why would you not not include verse 8 that it says that it's the proof of your salvation is an effect of it? Well, Hebrews wouldn't say that for the reason that I, I, I hesitate to go into detail on, but Uh, When you talk about salvation in Hebrews, you're not talking about new birth or justification. Those concepts, as far as I can tell, are are foreign to the book of Hebrews. That's a strange notion, I know. But look back at chapter 1, verse 14. This is the first appearance of the word salvation in the book. And uh, there, um, uh, he's talking about the angels. And he says about them, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who, and you may have simply will inherit? Um, That's a legitimate translation. It's perfectly legitimate. But there's a detail that that it omits. There's a verb there. Normally speaking in Greek, you can use a future tense verb for this. Greek doesn't here. It uses a present tense verb for inherit. Um, so how did you get future out of it? Well, there's a preceding word that's not exceedingly common in, in the New Testament, but it does show up. And it always talks about something coming future and something that's, that's imminent. So I like to translate this in verse 14, sent out to serve those who are about to inherit salvation. Well, we'll inherit, we'll get that. But it doesn't emphasize something. How much of what you're about to inherit can you spend? <laughs> you shouldn't spend any of it, but well, some people do. Well, you can't spend it. You can spend in light of yeah. the expected inheritance. We can't spend any of the inheritance before you actually inherit. So, how many of the people that the angels are serving have salvation? If they're about to inherit salvation, how many of those that the angels are serving actually have salvation? None. None. So for Hebrews, salvation is future. Turn to First Peter chapter one. It's, the, it's uh, right after James. First Peter chapter one. 
We don't spend much time in First Peter. At the funeral yesterday, I, I thought, I can't think of a better passage than First Peter 1, 3 to 12. And I, I, you'll never believe this. My daughter certainly won't. I did this in about 15 minutes. Uh, 12? That's just a minute per, per verse. How did you do that? that is that possible? Uh, but in verse uh, 3, um, verses 3 to 5 are the verses I'm interested in here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to the greatness of his compassion has begotten us again. So Peter knows about new birth, yes? Mm-hmm. All right. So there it is. He's begotten us again to a living hope. There's the end of our salvation. Living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead for an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, being kept in heaven for you who are being kept by the power of God. I'm going to stop there just a moment. Here's another thing that we usually call salvation. What, what would we call that? God, who's, we are being kept by the power of God. Perseverance. Perseverance, yeah. So, so uh, we would call that often, at least, that concept would be part of the sanctification process, yes? Unfortunately, the word sanctify hardly ever is used in that sense. But for the sake of this discussion, we'll talk about it here as sanctification. Uh, Who are being kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. The only part of salvation that Peter talks, uses the word salvation for is something future, something we do not have now. Does this make sense to you? That, That becomes really important when you get back into the later chapters of this book. Um, God is not willing that any should perish, but all that should all, should all should come to salvation. We read that first as an affirmation that um, uh, God is going to see to it that we're all saved. Or it's it's been even used to suppose that you can be saved and then lose it. Are you with me here? But if for Peter, see, they, they ignore the red. How bad is, what, what is proof texting? You have a belief and you go to Scripture to find a Scripture that supports it. <laughs> yeah. Or you take a verse and you make an application just based on that verse. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, if, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Bad thing. It's a bad thing. Why? No context. No context. Well, well how bad is it? If proof texting is taking a verse to establish a doctrine, how bad is it to take half a verse to establish a doctrine? Twice as bad. <laughs> so that's only half a verse, um, and we shouldn't use it that way. He's talking about well, he's talking about essentially his concept of salvation is eschatological. And God is working in us to make sure that we get there. Do you follow? But he doesn't call new birth salvation, and he doesn't call sanctification salvation. He calls the coming of the kingdom salvation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Does this make sense? Yes, sir. Yeah, we've always been taught growing up that salvation is three parts. Yeah. You know, yeah. you were saved, you were sanctified, and glorified. That's right. But what you're saying is salvation, and he uses it as glorification. Yeah. Sometimes 
the author is specifically talking about the latter. I did a I, I did some study on this a few years ago, and if I had to, I could come up with a with a passage somewhere. I forgot to take my pill this morning. It's in my pocket. I'm going to pop it. I'm, I'm a pill popper, so forgive me. Oh, it's done. Pardon? Now I remember. Yeah, now I got it. Uh, um, this was not for memory. I, that that was doing bad things to me, so I quit taking those pills. But the um, uh, the issue is about half of the references to salvation in the New Testament refer to new birth and justification. About, I've forgotten the, the precise details, about two-thirds of the remaining half refer to salvation in terms of sanctification. About a third of that remaining half relates to uh, salvation as future. Um, and if I assume that the word salvation always means new birth and justification, then I, I create all kinds of problems for myself. And that's created the necessity in Hebrews for, uh, for a debate that has lasted for centuries. What are the chances that the author of Hebrews had the Calvinist-Arminian debate in his mind when he was writing? Why do you laugh? Terry, why are you laughing? Yeah, I'm sure that's what the writer of Hebrews had in mind. Yeah. Why? Why? Because that's what people argue about. Well, I mean, they look at chapter 6, they look at chapter 10. Yeah. And it clearly means you can lose your salvation. Can you lose your salvation yeah. or can you not lose your salvation? Um, and when I, when I did this at the seminary, the students would all grin, but they'd never give an answer. I said, why are you grinning? Finally, someone would say, it's 14 centuries too early. <laughs> yes! Therefore, I must not ask my questions when I come to the text. I must discover the author's questions and how he's answering the questions. That's, that's a discipline called biblical theology. It's terribly important. As a, why, are you, why are you laughing so? Just, just the way you said it. Well, <laughs> uh, um, the, it, was like, uh, it was like you said, I'm a professor at Dallas. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> So the, the issue is that um, uh, I've got to know what the author is trying to communicate. And if he's not asking the, the Calvinist Arminian questions, then what are the questions he's asking? And the answer is, Hebrews is not teaching that you can lose your salvation. But it is teaching that you can lose the opportunity to get it. Uh, so you can be in the community... Um, look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. This, this is an incredibly important. Um, possibly, I want to keep my mind on this before I forget what I'm doing. Uh, uh, 3, 12, and 13. Beware, brothers. Now, that word brother, I can remember in Sunday school as a child, and the teacher would say, "Who? what kind of people is this passage written for? Well, it says brothers, so they're all Christians. But brothers is a term that a Jew would use for another Jew, whether he was a Christian or not. Peter does this even late in the book of Acts when he's speaking to Jews. He said, calls them brothers. And, and, 
and they're not Christians. That's why he's preaching to them. Does this make sense? It makes sense because even even Southern dialect uses the word yeah. brother as yeah. non-Christian. That's right. It's just a it's just a somebody in the community that yeah. you share. Um, Beware, brothers, lest there shall be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief from withdrawing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, as long as it's it's as the term today applies, so that none of you may be hardened by the by the deceitfulness of sin. So in the community, how, how many of you actually believe that every member of your church that you fellowship in is born again? None of you believes that. Well, get rid of them. And why are you laughing? They don't. Why? Because Jesus gave the parable, let them both grow. Yeah. He'll sort it out. And furthermore, I can't tell. Right. There's simply no way to tell. There, I could go around lifting up shirts and seeing if there's that that mark that proves that you're born again on your back, but there's no mark that proves that you're born again on your back, so I can't tell. But uh, notice there in any of you. <clears throat> Who's included in the in any of you? Me. Um, every leader of the church is included. And the newest member of the church, the youngest member of the church, is included. Yes? So, in fact, in light of chapter 6, the ones who are most in danger are those, look, look at chapter 6, um, six four, uh, for it is impossible for those who have been once enlightened. That word once, that expression once enlightened. Uh, um, it, the, the word enlightened is used in the Old Testament for getting uh, full information about what God is trying to do in a particular instance. So Manoah, uh, Samson's father, asks the angel to be enlightened about how to raise the child. Does that make sense? All right. So if, if these people have been once enlightened, they're included. In, they, they've got the whole, all the information. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've experienced, let's see, how does it go? Um, uh, tasted the heavenly, uh, sorry, verse 4. Uh, they've tasted the heavenly gift. They've become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Partakers, it sounds like what? Partakers of the Holy Spirit. What's that sound like? Sounds like Christian. Sounds like Christian. Problem is, the word doesn't mean that you partake in the Holy Spirit. It means, back in chapter 1, the the king, uh, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, a scepter of righteousness, a scepter of your kingdom. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy beyond your, and our translations sometimes read, read fellows or companions. That's that word here. Uh, do you know anybody in the New Testament who's been once enlightened, gotten full information about the, the gospel, has tasted the heavenly gift? That, I need to define that quickly. What does it mean to taste the heavenly gift? To experience the reality of, of the work of God in the world. Was a co-laborer with the Holy Spirit. Has seen, the, the next one has um, uh, tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, who experienced Jesus' miracles 
and saw the fulfillment of, of, of prophecy. Do you know anybody like that in the New Testament who fell away? Judas. Judas. He, and and as, as Jesus says in John 6, he is a devil. Have I not chosen one of you? He, he uses the word diabolos in Greek. He is a devil. And maybe Demas. And maybe Demas. We don't know. My point is, folks, uh, how could Judas be a, a, a companion or a co-laborer with the Holy Spirit? Well, Ma- Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends the 12, 12 disciples out. Yes? Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons. Um, there are four. Um, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Freely you receive, freely give. Did Judas do any of that? Well, well, yes, but was was Judas involved? Was he a co-laborer with the Holy Spirit in any way in those events? How do you why do you say probably? Well, yeah, in 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 the upper room, when Judas goes out, John chapter twelve, what do people think he's doing? They don't think he's. He, this is when Jesus has revealed that there's a as is a traitor who's going to betray him, and he's even identified him. And when he leaves, everybody thinks, "Well, he's he's going to go give something to the poor or buy something for the feast." Right. Why don't they think he's the betrayer? None of them thinks that when Jesus reveals that there's a betrayer in their midst. Each one of them thinks, "Is it is it me?" Nobody thought of Judas. Then he must have done miracles along with the other apostles. And, and the story that on, in The Chosen, the, the, the introduction to Judas, and the, the ministry of the apostles in Matthew 10 that is developed there, they don't, I don't remember whether they show that Judas do, did any miracles, but all of them came back just reveling in what God had done. Judas was a co-laborer with the Holy Spirit. You think he was ever born again and lost? If Jesus says he's a devil, probably not. Does that make sense to you? So the people who are most in danger in Hebrews are not the newest believers. They're the ones who are most advanced. So you can't lose your salvation in Hebrews because you don't have it. (laughs) But you can lose the opportunity to get it. Do you follow this? Thus the disciplinary work of God in our lives. Um, Why should God's people suffer? There are a thousand reasons why God's people should suffer, and none of them have to do with their own sinfulness precisely. We live in a fallen world. That fallen world um, has rejected the source of life. So what's working in the sons of disobedience is death. Yes? Yes? What's working in the sons of light is the life of God. And the sons of darkness can have no love for the sons of light because they don't see anything that we're involved in, anything that we're committed to, anything that we talk about, anything that we try to do as useful. So they have to stop us if they can because it's squarely contrary to who and what they are. So that's that's a first thing. Secondly, how do you temper steel? How do you make it strong? Eat it. Eat it. 
heat it, and then heat and beat. <laughs> yeah, you put it in cold water, but you also beat it out, and then you heat it up some more, beat it up, beat it again. Are you with me here? You put it under stress to temper it so that it can bear the purposes for which it's been made. Otherwise, the, I, I, I'm talking like I actually know what I'm talking about here. But otherwise, the, the steel will be brittle and it will break too easily. Are you with me? Mm-hmm. So God is tempering people by his grace for strength. Uh, if Jesus came into this world. He, he got the right response from the sons of darkness. We are in this world as followers of Jesus. He walked the way of the cross. This is Jesus' word at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which is, by the way, dealing with eschatological salvation too. The purpose of the book of Sermon on the Mount is to say you can't get in to the kingdom by way by the way the Pharisees take. That's the broad way and the easy gate, the easy the broad gate and the easy way, the narrow gate and easy and and, and um, what, what, yeah hard way. Uh, is the way of Jesus, which is the way of the cross to the kingdom. And so later he will say to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Do you follow this? So if the Son of God has gone that path, we must go that path too. And suffering is not simply persecution for being children of God, but it's all sufferings, as Romans 8 makes clear. Um, So discipline... This, we, we, I didn't anticipate this taking the, the entire class period, but um, discipline is to prepare us for what we're going to be in the new heavens and new earth. Yes, sir. Well, I mentioned this before in, in Hebrews twelve six. I don't feel persecuted, or I mean, it sounds yeah. to me like you're saying pray for more persecution. No, that some more. No, that's practice? sick. That's sick. But but turn to Romans 8. Let me show you a passage. And it's after time. If you need to go, please feel free. But in, in, in Romans 8, verse 35, um, your text says, Who shall separate us from the love of God? It really, because of the rest of the verse, it must be translated, What shall separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? Um, shall tribulation or distress or or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Why did why why would you think a sword would ever separate you from the love of God? Right? Does that make sense? Um, so, I, I was sitting on the platform at Evangel Baptist Church on Perkins one Sunday morning, preparing to teach this passage. When you're sitting on the platform in those days at Evangel Baptist Church. It's five minutes till the sermon because it's special music. You sit on the front row, you go up to the to the platform when the special music starts, and you sit down on on the, one of the pulpit chairs, and then you get up to preach. So I got five minutes to sermon time, and I'm thinking, why should a sword separate me from the love of God? We, we Jan and I were in Stratford upon Avon a number of years ago, walking by a shop and there was a sword in the window and I thought, oh no, I'm going to be separated from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. No, it didn't bother me. I would have been I would have been glad to buy it if I'd had any money. But the uh, the fact is that none of us thinks in those terms. And I thought then, I wonder if these are have anything to do with the, the curses of the covenant in the Old Testament. Here's what I've discovered. Um... Uh, 
tribulation and distress occur in subsequent verses. Tribulation in one verse, distress in the second verse. And in the third verse, they occur together in Deuteronomy 32. Um, tribulation and distress. Persecution occurs in Deuteronomy 32. Famine occurs in Deuteronomy 32. Nakedness occurs in Deuteronomy 32. The word danger does not... I'm sorry, 20... Have I said 32? It's Deuteronomy 28. I'm sorry. Um, danger doesn't appear in that passage at all, but as a word, but the whole passage is jammed with, with uh, danger. And then sword, I believe that's in Leviticus 28, which is also the curses of the covenant. Um, if you break the covenant that God made through Moses, then these are the things you can expect. Um, so from the Old Testament's point of view, Deuteronomy 28 comes right before 32, pretty close to 32. And in chapter 32, um, is that the right passage? Yes, 32. Moses writes the history of Israel before it's, before it's even carried out. And the history of Israel is... God blesses them, and the response is rebellion. And then he forgives them and blesses them again, and the response is rebellion. And then he forgives them, and he blesses them again, and response is rebellion. And finally, he quits and brings um, exile from the land, which was the final curse of the covenant. So in Deuteronomy 28, um, uh, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword are signs that they have been separated from the love of God. In fact, in Leviticus 26, three times in the passage, uh, God says, if you do this, I'm going to do this. Um, And then, um, if you do not turn away from all your sins... I will punish you seven times more for all for all your wickedness. Three times he does that. The purpose of the covenant curses is to warn them you're you're in danger, and you should repent. But they never do. You read Psalm seventy-eight, and you see the same thing that's in Deuteronomy thirty-two. Are you with me? So, for Israel, the covenant curse was a sign that you've been separated from the love of God. For us. What was covenant curse has been transformed into covenant blessing. So even if I'm under co- undergoing these things, I am not so separated from the love of God. Um, so the the grand issue here is there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Even great suffering, which otherwise in the Old Testament is identified as punishment for sin is not, in fact, punishment for sin. It's the disciplining hand of God in the life of those whom he loves as much as he loves his son, Jesus, and is aiming to bring them to the same maturity that Jesus has achieved. Hebrews 5 Yeah. So, that was a rather lengthy answer to the question, but I don't have any short answers to these questions. There's no way to give short answers to these questions. Thank you again, and I'm sorry for the overtime, but... um, I suspect we'll not be able to do the the connection next week, but maybe we will. And if we can, then uh, I'll get that word to Jill. She can 
get word to all each of you. And if you're interested, Harlan, if you love the Word of God, you'll be here. If you don't love the Word of God, if you love your comfort, discomfort with with uh, uh, Zoom calls uh, more than you love the Word of God, no pressure, email, no, no pressure, no <laughs> pressure from the Lord, but not from me. <laughs> Let's pray. Uh, Father, your disciplining hand in our lives is painful. But you know that. You're not uncaring, though. Uh, it is your love and your acceptance of us that brings those disciplining events into our lives. Drive us back to this passage in hope when hardship comes. And that hardship can be disease. It can be... Um, um, poverty, it can be any number of things and not even persecutions for our faith, but when we're persecuted we have more hope because we see the overt opposition to our Savior when we can't see that overt opposition to our Savior then then we, we struggle, but remind us of this passage that you drive us back to it and let us find hope in it because your work in our lives is always to, to secure our life to secure our holiness and and to see peace a peaceful righteousness growing from us. Um, remind us and and give us unusual experiences of your love for us. And when we can't find that, let us trust your word. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.